0: As we go to prayer this morning, I would like to read a couple of verses from the 73rd Psalm, where we read these words, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. To me, that's so fitting in the time frame in which we live. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Master, and we're so grateful that you never leave us nor forsake us, that in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of conditions that make the future very uncertain, we are able to place our feet solidly on the rock Christ Jesus, and to know that he is in charge, that we are in the hollow of his hand, and that He will bring us uh, safely to His abode in the future. In the meantime, Your hand is upon us and around us. You will guide us, and I pray, Lord, that we will be people of faith, that we will reflect the glory of God in every situation. Lord, that we will be the salt and the light You've called us to be in this world. And Lord, that the steadiness of the church will reflect the truth of the Scripture around the world. And, Father, we particularly pray for this mighty movement that's going on in India today, that you will work a great work. Father, that you'll bless all of those that are in the Church of India and missionaries and others that are, are trying to make this a focus of spreading the gospel, of handing out scripture, of praying, of ministering to people, and that these frustrated people who have been persecuted and, and, and uh, put in, in such an outcast position for so long, Lord, that they will break free of this and that they will hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which grants freedom and hope, and that they will be drawn into your kingdom and mightily saved. O God, bring millions, we pray, into your kingdom and demonstrate to the world the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of Almighty God in heaven. Father, strengthen our faith and our focus on prayer. Bless us now in our study of this hour that you might be glorified in the thoughts which we think and in the truth which we learn and apply. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Chapter 28 of 1 Samuel deals primarily with Saul and his encounter with a medium, which in the King James Version is, of course, translated witch, because the King James Version was, was translated in the early 17th century at a time when the word witch was very popular in both England and, and in the colonies. But you know, when we think of a witch, we have this picture of somebody on a broom with a black hat flying around, which, of course, is not at all what a witch uh, is like. But she was a medium, as we're going to notice, specifically a necromancer, and he has this encounter, and that's what the chapter primarily focuses on. But you'll remember that last Sunday, we talked, first of all, about the first two verses concerning David's predicament there in Philistia. David, in order to escape Saul's relentless pursuit of him, had fled over to Philistia and and, uh, made himself a vassal to the king of Gath, whose name was Achish. And David wanted to prove, of course, to him that he was a true vassal. And the best way to do that was to get out of Achish's sight as much as possible. And so he was living down in the south. And he was actually undercutting Achish and the Philistines while helping Israel. But, of course, he made it appear that the opposite was true. And he, in fact, said that the opposite was true. Well, when Achish finally commanded him, he said, We're going to a war with Israel, and you're coming with me. (laughs) You might say that David's bluff was called, and he was forced to give, in verse 2, as you read there, an equivocal answer. In the second verse, David says to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. <laughs> which, of course, he hoped Achish would interpret as, Well, David's going to really serve me and, and, and uh, be a true vassal, and by which he, of course, meant, I'm out of here if I ever have to face Israel. What is interesting is that uh, God will provide David with a way of escape, in spite of the fact that he's dug a deep hole for himself there in Philistia. Verses 3 to 7 of this 28th chapter of 1 Samuel deal with the Philistine invasion of Israel. This is nothing new. The Philistines had been invading Israel for decades, and Israel had been successfully under Saul, driving them back out. But now comes a force of great size, apparently with chariots and all the other accoutrements of battle. And Saul is in great fear because he feels that his army, which he has led to the slopes of Mount Gilboa to face Saul, is woefully inadequate to deal with the invader. So we discover in the passage that we read and studied last week that Saul went to God, attempted to go to God Through dreams, he wanted God to give him a dream telling him what to do. He went to the priest and he said, Use the Urim and Thummim and give me information. What is God saying that I should do? And then he went to the prophets and he said to the prophets, Tell me what God is saying. And he got a thunderous silence from them all. Not a word came to him about what he should do. God was not responding to Saul. And we noticed last week that the primary reason was Of course, Saul was not coming to God in faith. He was not coming to God in trust. He was a man who had committed himself to disobedience. He was rebellious. He refused to repent when he was given numerous opportunities to do so. So why should God speak to him? God had already given him his word. You're a dead man and your kingdom is gone. But he refused to believe. So finally, in desperation, Saul decides to resort to a medium. In the third verse of the passage we read last week, we saw that Saul had banished all the mediums and spiritists from the land. He had sent them out of the land. He had, he had, in effect, done God's will because in the Torah we're told that these spiritists are not to be in the land. They're to be chased out or executed. And so he had done that, probably not intentionally, specifically to do God's will, but because he felt that the land would be better off without them. But now we discover in this passage as we will read today that Saul is so reprobate that he violates his own laws and well, as well as those of God. And he finds himself in a terrible predicament. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning at verse 8. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. This is, of course, the medium at Endor. And he said, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me, Whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Then Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, there shall no punishment come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me, for you are Saul? And the king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground, and he did homage. First, let's just again... Note the location of these particular events. The Philistines have come up from Philistia down here. They've marched up through this region, and they have encamped right here at a place called Shunem. I mentioned last time that this hill is called the Hill of Morah. It's not a particularly large hill, but it uh, it sits between Mount Tabor, the Nazareth Ridge up here, and uh, Mount Gilboa, which is down here. And Saul had marched parallel from Gibeah down here with his force and was camped here on the northwest slope of the mountain known as Gilboa. So here's Saul here on, on Gilboa, just a little ways from Jezreel, maybe four or five miles from the Philistine camp there at Shunem. He's up on an elevation where he can see down, and he can see the array of the Philistine camp, and he can see all the horses and the chariots parked around, and the great number of Philistine warriors, and of course, he looked around at his own 3,000 plus who knows how many more were there, apparently was an inadequate force, we're not told how many was there, and he began to bite his nails, you might say. Fear crept into his heart at this particular juncture. And then, we discover that he decided to, since God wouldn't answer him, he said to his men, can you find me a, a, a medium? And they said, well, it just so happens we know of one. And she's not very far away, here's Endor right here, which is only about uh, four or five miles from Shunem, but it's on the other side of the hill from where Saul is <laughs> camped. And so I, I believe he probably went around this way to get to Endor, even though I have seen maps in uh, Bible atlases in which they assumed he went out this way to get there, which is, of course, possible but that puts him in a much more more vulnerable position. Scripture does not say how he went, so we just have to assume which route he took. And I feel that going around behind the mountain would be safer and further away from the enemy and is most likely the route that he took. Scripture tells us that Saul took two of his most trusted men. They are not named, and he snuck out of the camp. He put on a disguise and he left the camp at night This is not a statement about Saul's bravery. It's a statement of several other things. I believe he did this, first of all, because he did not want to alarm his men in seeing the king Knowing that the king's a bit nervous about this situation, seeing him leave camp with a couple of his guys, what are the rest of the men going to (laughs) think? Saul's abandoning us. We're all going to die out here without a leader. So he didn't want them to think that. Secondly, he he didn't want to be seen by Philistine spies or by collaborators who might say, ha, Saul is going out over here. If you send a small party, you can ambush him over here. He didn't want that to happen, of course. Thirdly, he didn't want to scare the medium. When he got there and she opens the door and there's Saul standing looking at her in the face. She's going to say, "Ah, duh, well, who are you and what do you want, you know? Not who are you, but what do you want? And he wanted her, of course, to go ahead and do uh, what he was there for her to do and not be frightened into non-cooperation. And I think, fourthly, he didn't want anybody to know his hypocrisy. He's the guy who chased all the mediums out of the land. Now he's going to one? Well, it doesn't seem to fit very well. And then lastly, I think he did not want to broadcast the fact that he was at the end of his rope. There was nowhere else to turn. And so he was turning to the most unlikely source of information by going to a necromancer. Well, if you are a medium, a necromancer, well, maybe we don't want to think that way. Think about a medium or a necromancer who happens to be there in the land knowing that they've all been banished, that the law says you'll die if you're caught, and in the middle of the night, some people, three guys come knocking at the door. What are you going to think? You know? So she is very nervous. Uh, she is frightened. And she is very much on edge. Who do these guys, what do they want? Of course, they're quick to get to the point. When she was asked to conjure up someone, she became even more frightened. Because that meant they thought that she was a medium. That they thought she was a necromancer. And so she reminded them that Saul, the king of the land, had banned all mediums and spiritists. And she made it very clear, I am suspicious that you are trying to entrap me. In Exodus 22, verse 8, we read this, God bluntly commanded, you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Period. So this woman, I think, had every reason to be fearful. She had every reason to be suspicious. Especially since she didn't recognize these men. They weren't from around there. And she didn't recognize particularly the taller stranger here that was disguised King Saul himself. I think what happens next is incredible. And yet, knowing Saul isn't so incredible, I suppose. He invoked the Lord's name in guaranteeing her security. He said, as God lives, you shall not be punished. Saul's heart is so hard that he can use the Lord's name to validate his promise to her that he would not enforce his own law or God's law. In God's name, I will not do God's will. In affects what he's saying. Well, you may remember when Samuel made his condemnation of Saul for his failure to destroy the Amalekites back in chapter 15. Samuel proclaimed to Saul as a response that rebe- rebellion is as the sin of divination. How accurate was Samuel? Because Saul has gone from rebellion to divination. Well, the woman was assured by his vow. He seemed very sincere. I think she was more assured by his desperation. I need to have this person called up, please. That she was more satisfied by that than his vow that no harm would come to her. She still didn't know who he was. And so she said, who do you want me to bring up? which clearly tells us she is a necromancer, one who is supposed to communicate with the dead. Her terminology is, whom shall I bring up for you? This indicates the common belief in that day that the region of the dead, which is called in the Hebrew Sheol, was located inside the earth, was subterranean, was below. The surface of the earth was underground somehow. And of course, we still think of that today when we look at our particular view of the afterlife. We talk about going down to hell and up to heaven, don't we? In Psalm 88, David makes it obvious in his statements where he says that Sheol is in the lowest pit, in the depths, he says. And that's repeated throughout the Psalms in many instances. Down into the grave, the scripture says. When Saul asked her to bring up Samuel, he says, I want Samuel to be brought up. She should have gone on red alert right at that moment. (laughs) Samuel, of all the people I could bring up for you, you want me to bring up Samuel, the prophet of God, who is my deadly enemy? (laughs) You know, the, the opposite number from whom I am. You want me to bring Samuel up. But it doesn't say that she thought that much about it or that she was hesitant to do it. Whatever whatever it was she thought, she went ahead with a ritual which is not described here. There's no description of what the ritual she went through, which she had to go through some kind of a ritual here in order to try to bring up Samuel from the dead. Well, the next few verses are really more enigmatic than they are enlightening, really. This woman was probably in a trance, at least at some point. Whether what she saw when Samuel appeared before her was an apparition, that she saw with her eyes or something that she saw inside her head or exactly how she saw Samuel, we do not know. But there are a couple of things that are very clear. First of all, we're told that she was so frightened that she cried out loud, ah, you know, when she saw this person come up before her. It is very obvious that this was not a run-of-the-mill divination. that was happening here. This wasn't her friendly ghost, you know, showing up here. Something about Samuel's appearance before her eyes induced a great fear in her heart. She probably recognized that this was not the normally, at least she assumed, controllable spirit that regularly came up when she did her necromancy. Uh, She felt out of control here. She felt like she had no control over what was happening. She was exposed. She was, in, in effect, in enemy territory as this was happening. And furthermore, what we discover here is either through clairvoyance or because God simply opened the door a crack and let her see that this guy who's asking you is Saul, the king. She cries out, you're Saul. Talk about fear. She was getting it from two ends because she had never seen an apparition like this before. And then suddenly she discovers the man who's asked her to do this is the very man who had banished all the mediums from the land. King Saul himself. Secondly, we discover here that it was obvious Saul could not see Samuel. He says to her, what do you see? What does he look like? He's asking the medium to describe him. So Samuel doesn't kind of come up and glow in the middle of the room like a hologram here. She sees Samuel, Saul does not see Samuel here. And he asks her to describe this godlike being she claimed to see. Apparently, Saul's appearance was unique to her experience. I mean, this I think was a veteran necromancer. She had been doing this for many years, she knew what she was doing. And she had seen many apparitions down through time. And she had called people up, supposedly, for numerous others. And so this this was a new thing for her. And she actually said to Saul, the appearance of this person is like an Elohim coming out of the earth. The word Elohim is the Hebrew plural term for God. This is an Elohim, not the Elohim, not Elohim with a capital E but it is an Elohim, a, a godlike person that is rising out of the earth before my eyes. And Saul says, well, what does he look like? And she says, he's an old man wrapped in a robe. Ah, doesn't sound terribly impressive, does it? There seemed to be nothing unusual or striking about this. And so what was it that caused her to call him an Elohim? There must have been something about his bearing. Maybe there was an aura of glow that she had never seen before. Something about Samuel that was totally out of the ordinary and caused her to think of him as a godlike being. A medium is the servant of Satan. And therefore, as a medium, she was familiar with evil spirits. She had encountered them on many occasions before. And she knew their vibes, so to speak. It seems that in this vision, The person she was seeing was totally discordant with the vibes she was accustomed to. She knew something was amiss. She was frightened because necromancy normally is either trickery or delusion, (coughs) or it is a evil spirit, an evil spirit, (laughs) impersonating the individual. And she knew that. And what she saw was neither. It was neither a delusion, It wasn't trickery that she had conjured up on her own, and it didn't appear to be an evil spirit to her. She knew she was dealing with something very dangerous here. Concerning what really happened here, I'd like to read to you a little quotation from the commentator Eugene Merrill. He says, So startled was the medium by Samuel's appearance that she immediately realized that the work was of God and not of herself. This implies that she did not really expect to raise up Samuel, but only a satanic imitation. That Samuel's appearance, even in visionary form, was not the expected result clearly teaches that necromancers have no real power over the deceased, especially the righteous, but can only produce counterfeits. Samuel's appearance here is explained by the intervention of the Lord, who graciously permitted Saul One last encounter with the prophet. Many of the ancient rabbis and the early church historians argue that Samuel actually appeared to the medium. That this was Samuel, not an apparition, not a conjured up demonic imitation, but Samuel. And that he came not by the power of Satan, but by the power of God. And that's why she was so frightened. (laughs) She was in the wrong end of the spectrum here and uh, she was scared to death. It is clear from verse 14 that Saul was convinced that whatever it was she saw was really Samuel, because we're told there that he bowed on his face to the ground and did homage. Saul groveled on the ground before Samuel, not her, but before what she was seeing in the person of Samuel. Let's read on at verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and answers me no more, either through the prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. I don't know if you see the the absolute incongruity of that verse. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and become your adversary? And the Lord has done according as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, as you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek. So the Lord has done this to you this day. Moreover, and this is, of course, the kicker, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. It's interesting that nothing happens to the media. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's almost like she's ignored in the whole situation. Although it's not specifically stated so, I, I think that we have to assume that the whole conversation that we read about there in that passage occurs through the medium. She's the one seeing Samuel, she's the one responding what Samuel is saying to Saul and Saul is speaking through her to Samuel. Samuel spoke first asking Saul why he had disturbed him by bringing him up. Now that can be interpreted in many ways, but I think it's important for us to note that the Hebrew word here that is translated disturbed is never used in a connection with sleep. So we cannot imply from this passage that Samuel was in some sort of soul sleep situation and Saul had shaken him awake and brought him back to the whole world here. The word disturbed is normally used to describe a trembling or a shaking that is associated with anger. And so Samuel may be saying here is, Saul, I'm ticked at you because you've drawn me away from the peace of the afterlife to bring me back into this ugly world, especially to deal with hard-hearted Saul. Samuel had had his dealings with Saul over many years. He had been reluctant to anoint Saul king over Israel in the first place and only did it because God said, Do it, Samuel. And he had nothing but trouble with Saul all the rest of the years and so he wasn't terribly excited about coming back and talking to Saul once more. But Saul makes absolutely no apologies. He just kind of brushes off uh, Samuel's statement and poured out his distress and his fears. Since the Philistine crisis that was occurring right there at that moment was overwhelming him and since God was not responding to him no matter what channel he tried to use, he wanted Samuel to tell him what to do. Just as you have done in the past, one more time, Samuel, tell me what to do. I'm sure in Samuel's mind was, why? Why? You've not done it before when I've told you what to do. This tells us some things. Just implied in this is, first of all, the fact that Saul believed in the afterlife. Saul did not believe that Samuel was just dead and buried and gone. He believed that Samuel could be reached. He also believed that Samuel was still a conscious being, capable of communication. Or otherwise, he wouldn't have done this at all. But of course, believing that a medium could bring up Samuel tells us a little bit about his distorted thinking about how you reach a godly man who has died. That's a wrong channel, Saul. I believe that Saul actually was successful in making contact with Samuel only because, as Eugene Merrill said, God allowed it to be so. I do not believe that a necromancer or any other diviner can actually communicate with the dead. I think it's all bogus. There's no such thing as communicating with the dead, whether they're in heaven or in hell. Instead, if they really do communicate with anybody, if it it isn't a delusion, if it isn't trickery and they're actually having some kind of communication, they are dealing with an evil spirit who impersonates the dead person. And I think that is the rule that we can understand to be true. The way this passage is written, And the truthful message that Samuel delivered to Saul, I think indicates that Samuel is the spokesman here. This is not an evil spirit imitating Samuel because is an evil spirit gonna tell the truth? Not too likely. Is the evil spirit gonna give God glory? Not too likely. This is Samuel himself. And Samuel's question which is recorded in verse 16 cut right to the heart of the matter. He bluntly asked Saul, why are you calling me up? Why do you want to communicate with me when you know that I am God's spokesman and God isn't speaking to you so why do you want me here? What can I say to you? God has become your adversary. Those are frightening words. God has become your adversary. I don't know there's a lot of adversaries around I don't really care to have but the one who I wouldn't want to be my adversary is the Lord God Almighty. Saul knew very well that Samuel was the Lord's spokesman and so he was just kidding himself. He was just desperate for anything here. He just wanted Samuel to give him one last word. Just something to do because I don't know what to do. I'm facing destruction and disaster. So what did Samuel say to Saul? He reminded him of God's prophecies that he had already given to Saul prior, reminding him that you have forfeited the kingdom, Saul, and God has chosen David to succeed you, the man you have chased through the wilderness for lo these many years. Samuel followed his reiteration of what Saul already knew, he already knew all those things, with a stunning pronouncement that Israel is going to be defeated and you and your sons will be with me tomorrow. (laughs) This isn't what Saul wanted to hear. It isn't what he came to hear, but it is what he heard. Literally, Samuel told Saul that he and his sons would be with him in the realm of the dead. If you've studied the Old Testament in any detail, you know that there is no clear theology concerning the netherworld or the afterlife in the Old Testament. The primary word used in the Old Testament for the afterlife is sheol, S-H-E-O-L. This word is used 66 times in the Old Testament in 17 books, primarily in Job, Psalms, and Proverbs, but also in the prophetic books as well. As you read through the scripture and, and kind of glean what is said about sheol, you get this sense that sheol was viewed as sort of the grave and beyond. It was viewed as kind of a gloomy, shadowy world down under the earth, possibly damp and dark. That there was no distinction in this world of Sheol between the bad and the good, all go to the grave. And David says, in the grave, who can praise you, O Lord? There's this concept of a serious disconnect between that world and this world. Thus, when Samuel said that Saul and his sons would be with him the next day, Samuel was definitely saying that there is life after death, Saul, but he is not saying or making any distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous at that point. When he says, you will be with me, he's talking generically. He's not talking specifically. Deal? Do you think this has anything to do with the religion talk about purgatory? Yeah, I think so. The, the belief of the ancient Hebrews was very similar to the belief that was held by many of the people of the Near Eastern world at that particular time. And the concept of purgatory is not found anywhere in the Bible except in the apocryphal books. The book of 2nd Maccabees, there is a reference that is interpreted as having to do with purgatory. But certainly, yeah because this seems like a kind of an in-between place. I mean, just, just from what little information we have here, and that there is no real heaven or any hell yet. But I think as we begin to look at the New Testament, Jesus begins to clear up the muddy water a little bit, uh, particularly in the 16th chapter of Luke, particularly relative to the term shiol. Let me, well, let me read that passage here. We're just about out of time, but... Let me read the 16th chapter here of Luke. This is a passage you know very well because it's a famous, frequently read parable. Beginning at verse 19, Jesus says, Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man died also and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, there is between us and you a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Now, this is a parable. We have to remember that. But at the same time, it's a parable coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ, Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, who knows the end from the beginning, and is not going to give us a bunch of hocus-pocus. I think what Jesus is doing here is helping us to understand what Sheol was really like. The word Hades is used here, that's a Greek word. It's more or less equivalent to the Hebrew word Sheol from the Old Testament. The Septuagint version, which is the earliest Greek version translated from the Hebrew scripture in Alexandria in Egypt before the time of Christ, translates Sheol by Hades in virtually every single instance, which indicates that's what they believed the equivalents were. However, in this passage, we seem to find that there is a distinction between Hades and Sheol, at least in terms of a division within it, because it seems that The location of the righteous and of the unrighteous is different in Sheol. The unrighteous rich man, we're told in this passage, is in a place of torment. Whatever all that involves, you know, doesn't really matter. He's in a place of torment. While the righteous Lazarus is in a secure place called Abraham's bosom, whatever that means. The torment portion of Hades was probably the place referred to in the New Testament as hell. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ refers to a fiery hell. The Greek word translated hell is Gehenna, and the most specific meaning of the word Gehenna is the Valley of Hanum, which was right outside the southwest corner of the city of Jerusalem, and it was the ever-burning garbage pit of the city. And to be tossed into there where they did all kinds of horrible things, killing their children in the name of various pagan gods. To a righteous Hebrew, that, that, that's, that's the worst thing you'd think of. And So that's Gehenna, and that's hell. It seems clear, I think, that in Hades, both the rich man and Lazarus could see each other and that communication could occur because the rich man speaks across to Abraham and Abraham responds to him. I know it's a parable, but again, I think the parable is teaching an underlying truth here. Many believe that, and and of course the scripture says there's a chasm, there's a gulf between them, and they can't pass over this gulf, so there's an initial separation of the righteous and the unrighteous, even in the Old Testament Sheol. Many believe, of course, that when Jesus descended into Hades after his death, that he took the righteous out, took removed Abraham's bosom from wherever Sheol was and, and took it up to be with him in heaven. And I'm not going to go into a debate about that because there's a lot of argument one way or another about that. But that the Gehenna portion remained behind and becomes the hell, which is a holding place for all of those who will stand before the great white throne judgment, where the scripture is quite clear about what happens at that point. And let me, in my final word today, read from Revelation chapter 20 in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire, the final place of judgment. Well, next Sunday, we'll pick up with the last passage of this chapter and look at Saul's reaction to all of this, which is, as you might expect...